His work has already saved more lives than any laboratory scientist in the past decade. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Peter Pronovo. Dr. Pronovo is a professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in the Departments of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine and Surgery and the Medical Director for the Center for Innovation in Quality Patient Care in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Pronovo, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you, Susan. Explain what led to your passion for quality care and patient safety. Well, there are a number of things, Susan, that came together. The first is when I was a medical student, my father died of cancer. He had been misdiagnosed and was beyond treatment. And I remember he came home from the hospital and we carried his brittle body up to a hospital bed with him writhing in pain and with the home hospice therapy being completely inadequate, that he unfortunately died a week later in severe pain. And I became convinced that we owed patients better, that they had to do more. I went on to get a degree in clinical research and realized that by far the greatest opportunity to improve health in this country isn't from inventing a new gene or finding a new drug. It's basically making sure we bring science to the delivery of care so patients get this information that we know has been produced. And then perhaps most powerfully, when, Susan, I was speaking to the mother of a little girl, Josie King, who died at our hospital from mistakes, and it was the four-year anniversary of the little girl's death, and the mother, Sorrell, said to me, Peter, could you tell me that Josie's less likely to die today than she was four years ago? And I answered like most hospitals would, with a list of the activities that we're doing. And she appropriately cut me off and she said, Peter, I didn't ask what you were doing. I asked if you know, and if so, how. And the reality is we, as an industry, don't have a credible answer for her. We don't have good measures of progress and safety, and she deserves an answer. Doctor, you're known internationally for your checklists. Tell us about these checklists. Well, one of the ahas from this came as, you know, we look at how we manage our personal lives and we add it, do it with much more rigor than we do patients' medical care. What I I mean by that is we often have clear goals. I have a checklist for my own life that says every day I want to exercise and eat healthy foods and get enough sleep and spend time with my wife and children, say a morning prayer. And whatever those personal things are, we are, we manage them pretty closely. In healthcare, we didn't do that. And what we saw was that the the way healthcare summarizes evidence is rigorous, but it's not very helpful for the person at the bedside. And that is, we summarize evidence typically in the form of practice guidelines that are elegant and often very valid. 100 to 300 page documents of summarizing everything that you could possibly want to know on a topic in flow sheets are what are called conditional probabilities or if-then statements. So if this, then do this, if then, then do that. And what we realized is that there's data from cognitive psychology that says nobody's brains think that way. So it's probably not surprising that those things aren't used often in the real world because they don't conform to how we think. 
what we had said is, okay, well, let's make it easy for docs. Let's try to do something that fits how they think. And, and I'm a practicing doc, so I live this. And I would say, okay, for whatever we want to improve, let's call out the five or seven most robust interventions, that is, interventions that have the strongest evidence or for the people who know epidemiology, the lowest number needed to treat and the lowest barriers to use, and let's put them in a form of a checklist. So let's make sure that docs always do these key things that are really important. And the rest of the stuff that is less robust in the evidence, well, you know, let's not worry about that. Turns out that that insight I think is revolutionary or transformative for healthcare. Give us a real life example. What are the five steps to take in order to avoid infections when putting a line in? Sure, Susan, this is great. So we took the very robust CDCs, the Centers for Disease Control Guidelines for preventing central line associated bloodstream infections and called out from them five interventions. Now you can argue why do we pick these? We picked them because they were strong evidence and they were practical to do. One of the things, Susan, is that it's important also that they're worded as behaviors, that we found that if you leave guidelines in vague concepts, no one will do them, that the more explicit we can be, the more standardized we can be in what exactly we want docs or nurses to do, the more likely they're to do it. And so the five things on our checklist are Wash your hands, clean your skin with a soap called chlorhexidine, use full barrier precautions, that means wear a cap, gown, and mask when you're placing these lines, avoid placing lines in the groin or the femoral site because it has a higher complication rate, and remove lines when they're not needed. So get the exposure out from patients if, if, if they don't need these. And those five simple things form the crux of our intervention to reduce these infections. What did you discover when you asked ICU nurses to observe doctors when they put lines into patients? Well, Susan, we found a couple things. And one of our approaches is to balance what I call both the technical, that is the science piece, and the adaptive piece, that is the culture piece. And one of the things we found is that for our docs to comply with these checklists, that is to get a cap, gown, and mask, that equipment was often stored in eight different places. So the docs had to go hunting to eight different places. Oftentimes it wasn't stored, and those were all opportunities for failure. So what we did is we formed a line cart and asked hospitals to stock all the equipment you need in one place, take eight steps down to one, and we improved performance. But then what we did is we said, okay, well, that got us some of the way, but it's not enough. Nurses, when docs are placing these lines, we want you to assist them and use the checklist to make sure that they do these five things. Now, that was also a bit of revolutionary because to date, most of the evidence on getting docs to use to practice evidence-based medicine has been physicians policing themselves or strategies aimed solely at physician. What we said is, well, let's embrace the whole care team to help us do this thing. Now, when I said it, you would have thought I was causing a new world war. The nurses rolled their eyes and said, my job is not to police the doctors, and if I do, I'm going to get my head bit off. And the physician said, you can't have a nurse second-guessing me in public. It makes it look like I don't know things. You know, to which I say, welcome to the human race. We all don't. But what was striking, Susan, was that nobody was disputing the evidence. They all agreed with the evidence. What they were arguing about were the power and the politics, the cultural barriers to doing this. And so I pulled everyone together and said, is it tenable that we harm patients 
from infections? And of course, everyone says no. And I said, then how could you as a nurse see somebody not washing their hands and stay silent? We can't afford, your patients can't afford to have you do that. At the same time, I don't want you to be getting your head bit off. So docs, let me be very clear. Unless it's an emergency, the nurses are going to question you and you have to go back and fix the defect. But it's not because we're playing power or politics. It's because we have to put patients first and we have to create a healthcare system where every patient every time gets these five things. And amazingly, when it was framed that way, that it was framed with the patients as our North Star, conflicts melted away and nurses and physicians use this checklist routinely. And the results were just earth-shattering. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is Dr. Peter Pronovo from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine discussing his internationally known checklists. Dr. Pronovo, your work has been described as already saving more lives than any laboratory scientist in the past decade. Why do you believe more hospitals don't use checklists? Well, Susan, when we look at the shortcomings in quality and safety in this country, they're appalling to some extent that, you know, upwards of 98,000 people die from mistakes, primarily of mistakes of commission. Patients on average get half of the evidence-based therapies that we're supposed to. There's estimated to be about 30% of healthcare costs that are wasted around 47 million people lack health insurance in this country. And though those problems are complicated, what underlies them, what permeates them is a very simple concept, and that is healthcare to date has had a too myopic view of biomedical science. Science to date has been finding a new gene. Science to date has been finding effective therapies, but the delivery of those therapies delivering them both efficiently and effectively, has been, quote, the art of medicine. And so it shouldn't be surprising that we have a whole bunch of therapies that we know that work, but that patients aren't getting the benefit from them. And as a result of this myopic view, we don't fund studies to look at the, the delivery of healthcare. And what we need is a more balanced approach to biomedical research that includes not just the beginning of discovery, but also the delivery of that, the very end of that translational highway. And what we saw in our study is that when you do bring scientific rigor to it, the results are breathtaking. And importantly, physicians engage in it. That there's often this perception that physicians are resistant to quality improvement and patient safety. And there's some truth to that. But a big part of the resistance is probably justified because the field of quality improvement and safety has frankly done sloppy science, that we've put things forth to them that either aren't evidence-based or the measures aren't robust, and we make claims that are more marketing than science. And what we found is that we do good science, as we did in this case in, in Michigan, that physicians embrace it and they embrace it with a passion because they're committed to do it, but they also want to, at the end of the day, know that they could answer Sorrel King's question, here's how, are we safer? How much money is saved because of the checklists? Yeah, those are complicated questions, and it also depends save for who. So whether it's saved by patients, by hospitals, by insurers, by employers, we have a very detailed economic analysis underway now to look at 
who saves and whose pockets it saves in from the Michigan study. But what we estimated, and we estimated it using the cost of these infections, that the project in Michigan saved somewhere around $200 million a year. Now, Susan, to frame that, that project was funded by a grant from the federal government. The total grant was somewhere around 500000 a year. So here you have a 400-fold return on your investment. It, you know, it's an amazing return from an investment of a relatively small amount of dollars. Dr. Pronovo, thank you so much for joining us to discuss how your checklists save lives. Great. Thank you. And I look for broad adaptation and improvement upon this because I think, as I mentioned earlier, we owe Sorrel King an answer to the question, how do we know we're safer? I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD library. Thank you for listening. 